Thank you very much, Roger. And again, good morning to you and good morning to the world as we come your way with our weekly visit to talk agriculture and food production and now county fairs and farmers markets and all of the other activities that take place in rural America, county fair time, state fair time coming up. And so we have a lot to uh, talk about. Interesting story out of the town where my family lives in Westby, Wisconsin. A unique idea for uh, taking care of the milk that is produced by dairy cows being exhibited at a fair, at a county fair, and uh, a little uh, creamery or uh, cheese-making family-owned operation in Westby, Wisconsin, doing something unique with the milk that comes from the dairy cows who are away from their barn home and at the county and state fairs for uh, exhibit during county fair season. So we'll share that story with you this morning here on the Saturday Morning Show. And, of course, Jim Fazell standing by to talk about some of the problems and challenges you may be having with your lawn, your flower garden, or your vegetable garden. And we'll get to uh, Jim when we continue here on the Saturday Morning Show. Every week here on the Saturday Morning Show, we check in with Jim Vizell to catch up on what's happening in your lawn, in your vegetable garden, and in your flower garden, because Jim, I would guess there's always something happening in those areas. Always, and if if you don't think there is, you need to go out and take a look, because one of the real joys of gardening is that uh, nothing stays the same. Every day is different. If you go out today and look at something and and you go out tomorrow, you'll find that it has already changed. Just one day makes a big change. But there's some unusual things that are happening out in the garden this year. In fact, uh, I've had a lot of people stop me. They do all the time to ask me gardening questions. But I also talked to my good friend Chuck the Urban Arborist. He's one of the tree people in this area that gets around to see a lot of stuff. Uh, just to ask him what he was seeing. And uh, these are some of the things that are on people's mind. First of all, people who have magnolias, these are magnificent plants with little lacy-like flowers uh, in uh, early spring before the leaves come out, and then large saucer-shaped flowers a little bit later, two different kinds. But people are finding out that these plants aren't uh, doing very well this year, some of them. And if they look closely at the stem, it looks like popcorn up and down the stem. Well, this is magnolia scale. And actually, uh, this bloom that's on these scales, this popcorn-colored white, uh, will eventually wear off. The scale will look like um, uh, it has a halo around a brown center, almost like a monk's hairdo. Uh, Now, this scale will kill the plants. It'll kill branch at a time. Uh, If you have a real severe problem, uh, sometimes the best thing to do is to prune prune all of that out, or eventually it's going to kill the tree. And if if it's so bad that it looks like the tree is going anyway, might be time to replace it. Uh, There are some pyrethroids that will work, and seven insecticide will work on these insects. But the timing is very peculiar. The larvae, the little crawler stages, come out in the fall. And people say, well, how can, I, how can I know when that's happening? Well, you, one of the ways that I do this is to take a piece of double-sided tape, wrap it around a twig where you have scales, and keep watching it in the fall, usually in September. When you begin to get the little crawlers on there, these are little tiny, uh, maybe uh, a 32nd of an inch in diameter insects that are moving, that's the time to do the spraying. Now, there's another insect that's causing some problem in rose gardens, and uh, I do have roses in my yard which have been affected by this. 
Tiny green caterpillars get on the plants. You can't even see them. They're so tiny before they do the damage unless you're really looking closely. But they eat the flower buds before these buds really begin to develop, or they actually can uh, chew the flower bud off so you're not going to get flowers. Um, uh, Plastic mulch is is the answer to this. And people say, well, why is that? Well, the life history of these things is very interesting. First of all, the the um, pupa don't stay on the plant. They drop to the ground below, and then they pupate down there. Now, if you trap them with black plastic underneath the plant, they cannot mature. You don't have any more problem with them. Merit is uh, an insecticide that you, you can use on them. Of course, it's put on the soil early in the season. Uh, viburnum leaf beetle is another one. Now, some people who have viburnum plants have discovered that these plants have begun to uh, smell pretty badly, almost like a skunk is walking through. Uh, and you begin to, to wonder what's happening with these things. If you go out and take a look, you're going to find out that leaves are like Swiss cheese. These little leaf beetles eat holes in the leaves, and when they do that, these viburnum plants respond with the fragrance that's rather despicable. Supposedly it's supposed to chase these insects off, but I don't think it ever does that. Uh, one of the solutions to this thing is don't, don't plant the viburnums that get this insect now. Uh, actually, uh, this has moved into our area very recently, fairly recently, but in parts of the country where they've had it for a while, they've discovered that eventually enough predators move in to control this thing that you can begin planting your viburnums again. Now, the the prime culprit of this or the prime uh, target of this is arrowwood viburnum, which is very popular as a hedging, hedging material. So if you wait maybe a decade, take the arrowwood out that's causing the problems and figure that you're going to replant it in maybe a decade, uh, you should be good. Now, if you want to try to control this with insecticide, seven is the material to use. Since we got done with the heavy rains that we've had throughout this area, some of the insects that don't like wet weather have begun to appear. One of them is the aphid. Aphids don't like wet weather because there are fungi that grow on them in hot, in hot, particularly hot, wet weather that kill them before they can do any damage. As soon as the weather dries up, then these things don't have these fungi growing on them and the natural control isn't working anymore. Uh, really, one of the things to do if you are... Um, walking through your garden and you see a, a sprig that has an aphid, just snap it off and put, the, put that twig in the garbage and you're done with it. Uh, a strong spray of water. If you have a, almost like a, a pressure washer spray of water, uh, you can spray plants with that and it will knock these off. They aren't able to climb back up again once they're down. Uh, the last one I want to mention is an interesting creature that's moved into this area. Didn't didn't originate in this country, but it's come in. It's the bar, the brown marmorated stink bug. Now this is a shield shaped insect, maybe three eighths of an inch long. It has little white dots all around the periphery. It is a true bug. It sucks the sap out of plants, uh, and it damages veggies. It's particularly troublesome where there's commercial vegetable production because it will damage things like squash, cucumbers, pumpkins. It does a lot of damage uh, uh, before anything can be done about it because there is no good control for it. Pyrethroids and oils will work, the summer oils or the dormant oils or even the, the um, um, pyrethroids, of which there are many. These would be things like uh, Bayer Advanced or Ortho, Bug Be Gone or Fertilome. Any one of those will work on this thing, but they're not real good controls. Now, the reason I mention this is not 
primarily because it's a big pest of vegetable gardens, but because these things have a peculiar habit of looking for a place to spend the winter, which normally turns out to be indoors. Now, if you get them indoors, they're they're... They're not going to eat anything. They're not going to hurt anything indoors. But if you squash one of these things, it practically makes the whole room stink. That's why they call them stink bugs. So they're mostly pests outdoors, indoors in the fall and late in uh, in spring before they begin to move outdoors again. So what you want to do with them is vacuum up indoors. Don't try to squash them. Um, If you are having problems with them getting in, it means that your house is not tight, that you have cracks in the windows or walls or something that need to be taken care of. So that's a pest that's on its way here. It's just beginning to move into this area. If you begin to see them outdoors at this time, uh, be prepared because normally these things don't get better, they get worse. So that's about it. Uh, There are some diseases that have been attacking plant materials. I don't think we have time to talk about them this morning, but I will talk about them in uh, more detail next week. And I also want to talk about scouting your garden next week, what you can do to make sure that you know what's happening out there and what you can do about it. So that's about it for today. I think uh, we're going to have a a hot weekend, time to enjoy summer here in Chicagoland. It's what we wait all winter to have. Get out and enjoy it. And and have a good time in our wonderful outdoors. All right, Jim. We always appreciate your expertise with us. And there are enough challenges out there that I know you'll never run out of material. Isn't that a fact? Our visit with Jim Fazell, special ornamentalist uh, in horticulture, and he's with us every Saturday morning on the Saturday Morning Show. 17 minutes after 5 o'clock here on the Saturday morning show, a warm weekend ahead, whether you're in the Midwest or in Arizona. But uh, I do want to share the story of supporting a county fair. I talk a great deal about support your county fair by attending and taking part in the activities, but also by volunteering, because county and state fairs depend a great deal on volunteers to make the show go. But an interesting story out of Westby, Wisconsin, up in Vernon County, and that's where I grew up. For the second year in a row, the Nordic Creamery of Westby will be taking the milk from the dairy cows being exhibited at the Monroe County Fair. And keep in mind, even though you've moved those cows from the dairy barn at home into a barn at the fairgrounds, they still have to be milked. What do you do with the milk? You don't want to throw it away. And so the creamery will be taking in the milk from the show dairy cows They'll make fresh cheese curds that will be available for purchase at the fair. And uh, Nordic Creamery was contacted last year by the Monroe County Fair because they lost the buyer for the dairy cow milk produced at the fair. And larger milk processing plants have a hard time dealing with a small amount of milk from the local fairs. And Al Beckham, who is the owner and head cheesemaker at Nordic Creamery, said they would help them out by taking in the milk. They then took it a step further and decided to add value to the fair milk. And as far as they know, what Nordic Creamery is doing is making the first county fair milk cheese in the state of Wisconsin. And uh, Nordic Creamery is a small family-owned dairy plant in rural Westby owned by Al and Sarah Beckham, who grew up in agriculture and, of course, their kids 
also in agriculture. But at the Monroe County Fair, which is winding up tomorrow in Toma, you can probably buy some of the cheese curds made by the Nordic uh, Creamery of Westby that has come from the cows being exhibited at the fair. The great idea to uh, work with the county or state fairs and make sure that they're taken care of. So congratulations to Al and Sarah Beckham and the Nordic Creamery in Westby, Wisconsin. 20 minutes after 5 o'clock, standing by, we'll head by telephone to uh, Southern Illinois and we'll talk to the president of the Illinois Farm Bureau when we continue here on the Saturday Morning Show. This morning, we go downstate to Randolph County to check in with Rich Gebert, president of the Illinois Farm Bureau. And I guess, Rich, we begin with the question that everybody is talking about. What kind of a spring was it for you and what are crops doing at the moment? Well, Orrin, uh, first off, it's my pleasure to be with you and speak with your listeners at WGN. But uh, this has been probably one of the toughest springs I've ever been involved in in 40 years of, of my farming career so far. Uh, we, if you farm in the river bottoms, we still got those farms are flooded. We did open up the the gravity drains, and we're starting to let some water out. But uh, you know, this is the first time in my life we never planted anything in the month of May, and uh, did a lot of our planting in the latter part of June, and finished up all probably about the tenth or eleventh of, of July. So uh, it's been a long, long spring for everybody. Not only here in Southern Illinois, but throughout the Midwest. Same answer I've heard from every farmer I've talked to and asked the question, every market analyst, every trader. I have yet to run into anybody who says they can remember a spring like this 50 years ago because this was an unusual one. Now, the ongoing trade talks between China and the United States and that's bringing on, I guess, more aid programs from USDA. What's your comment on that? Well, um, you know, we really need to get these trade agreements resolved, particularly with China. But uh, it's been a long haul, a long road ahead. And, you know, kind of encouraged that that uh, trade ambassador is headed to Beijing next week for two days of talks, and hopefully something can be resolved. But we've heard and seen that before. But with regard to the trade mitigation uh, payments that the administration, Secretary Purdue, laid out yesterday, it is a welcome relief that we get some support uh, going forward. But this is definitely not going to make us whole, but it has a more broader picture this time uh, to cover a lot of farmers, um, you know, not only here in the Midwest, but a number of crops uh, that have been impacted uh, by the trade and the tariffs, uh, particularly with China. And we are so uh, involved in the Chinese-U.S. trade situation that we maybe don't pay enough attention to Mexico-Canada-U.S. trade agreement, the European Union trade agreement. We seem to not be making much progress. What's your feeling? Well, you know, a number of us uh, were out in Washington, D.C. that AFBF had a fly-in. Uh, we were out there in the first part of July with the AFBF Board and Council of Presidents and made Hill visits, and that was one of our top priorities and talking points with our legislators out there, that we needed to get the USMCA 
across the finish line sooner than later. And I was encouraged by, you know, the support that we have and hearing that Speaker Pelosi wants to get this done. But I really applaud um, uh, uh, Trade Representative Lighthizer visiting with the Democrats and answering questions on the House side um, to try and find out, you know, what are ways that they can work through this that we can get this across the finish line. And going to one of the other uh, trade situations with the European Union, the chief of that negotiating team said yesterday, if you're going to include agriculture, we're not going to be involved. How can you do a trade agreement today and leave agriculture out of it? I don't understand. Well, you're absolutely right, Arn. I don't know how that works or how that can be done. But we hope that that can be resolved sooner or later. I know that they got trade representatives in the United States uh, last week or this week. And hopefully uh, we can get somewhere. But we're very thankful that, you know, I think talks are continuing with Japan. They have opened up their markets to more beef. And that is a vitally important market as well uh, to, you know, all of uh, American agriculture. So looking ahead, will we see you at the Illinois State Fair, and will Farm Bureau be at the Farm Progress Show? Absolutely, Orrin. Uh, we'll be there on Ag Day for sure. I'm going to be there for the showmanship contest on, I think that's the first Friday night of the fair, and then uh, plan to spend a couple of days at the Farm Progress Show with uh, Secretary uh, Purdue. Uh, hopefully he's there. I know Ted McKinney is coming and Greg Dowd as well as hopefully Zippy Duval can uh, make it the president of American Farm Barrel. Well, it's going to be a busy summer, and after the long planting season of spring, the harvest season could take three or four months, couldn't it? <laughs> uh, you're absolutely right, Orrin. And, you know, there's a number of our members have made comments to me. I said, they hope that they are done before we get to our annual meeting the first weekend in December in Chicago. <laughs> I'm glad we can still maintain a sense of humor in some of these challenging times, not only with weather, but certainly with the trade. Rich, we Absolutely. thank you. We thank you so much for giving us time this morning, and we look forward to seeing you again uh, throughout the summer at all of the events. Thank you very Rich. much, Arnest. My pleasure to always visit with you. Okay, Rich Gebert, president of the Illinois Farm Bureau, with us here on the Saturday Morning Show. The Association of Illinois Soil and Water Conservation District held its 71st annual meeting and summer training conference earlier this month and honored several people for their work in soil and water conservation. Let me quickly name the award winners for that. Legislator of the Year Award presented to State Senator Scott Bennett of the 52nd District in Illinois. The 2019 Friend of Conservation Award went to Chris Reynolds of the American Farmland Trust. And the 2019 Conservation Farm Family Award uh, went to uh, the Mueller family of Taylor Ridge, Illinois, and the Aldridge family of Lawrenceville, Illinois, Conservation Teacher of the Year, Brent Miller of Satchery High School, and Bill Hamas of the Sherrard High School, and the Outstanding Forestry Contribution Award went to Bill Calvert of Breeze, Illinois. And finally, the George McKibben Memorial Scholarship Award 
to Megan Finfrock of Clinton, Illinois, all honored at the 71st Annual Illinois Soil and Water Conservation District meeting earlier this month. Congratulations to them all. And that brings us up to uh, news headlines time before we move into the second half of the show to talk markets with Mike Pearson and to share some thoughts with you again on county fairs on Samuelson Says and all of that coming up. But time now for news headlines. And with those, we say again, good morning to Roger Batty. And good morning to you again as we come your way with the second half of the Saturday morning show. A longtime friend and market analyst Mike Pearson will be joining uh, the uh, show this morning as Max Armstrong sits down and talks with him. But there's one other thing I did want to mention, and I'm going to do it on Samuelson Says, and uh, then there's another story. So welcome to Samuelson Says. I'm Orion, asking all of you again to support your county fair. Earlier this year, I asked for your suggestions of subjects to talk about on Samuelson Says. And a lot of you mentioned your concern over the future of county fairs and mentioned challenges like finances to pay the bills as more states cut funding to support county fairs. Finding volunteers to work ahead of the fair and during the fair to make sure everything goes well and competition with activities that attract fair goers to other entertainment venues. Well, this week I want to share with you a story of a county fair in southwestern Wisconsin. It has an even bigger problem, annual flooding, because the fairgrounds are in a floodplain, and they sent me photos of this year's flood and the grounds and all of the buildings under at least five feet of water, so the entire fairgrounds must be moved. Then let me share with you what this county plans to do. Maybe it'll give you some ideas on how to help the fair in your county. Since flooding is an annual event, the County Livestock Committee started working on the situation three years ago to ensure the future of the fair and other agricultural events in southwestern Wisconsin. They started to look for funding from individuals and companies, as well as other sources, to move the fair out of the floodplain and build a new fairgrounds. They then formed the Southwest Wisconsin Ag Innovation Center Committee, and its president, Steve Carpenter, said, Thanks to the generosity of a local farmer, we have the option to purchase 80 acres outside the floodplain and set up for a strong future for the fair. To purchase the land, create the infrastructure and complete buildings necessary to host the fair, we will need approximately $3 million. I know that seems like a lot, but we are really out of options to be able to continue hosting a fair for our kids. I've worked for them just a little bit on funding ideas, and not once have I heard anyone say it's too expensive, we just can't do it. It takes that kind of spirit and attitude to not only save county fairs, but to grow them for our kids and keep this slice of Americana alive and growing for the future. 
My thoughts on Samuelson Says. And that's a presentation of the Tribune Radio Networks. It brings us up to uh, 5.37 here on the Saturday Morning Show. I'll make one more comment on another story that caught my attention this week dealing with fairs. Uh, Rock County Fair in Janesville, Wisconsin is winding up this weekend. And uh, the story said, if you see Randy Thompson at the Rock County 4-H Fair this week, consider giving him one of the big baked carnival pretzels or a butterfly pork chop on a bun. The longtime fair volunteer and the fair board president for the past four years told the Janesville Gazette he likes a good seasoned chop. It's his go-to snack at the 18-acre county-owned fairgrounds in Janesville, where he has spent countless hours every summer for the past 29 years. But he now plans to hang up his hat as the fair board president and step away from the board after this year. So, thanks to Randy Thompson, one of those people who worked to preserve and build a county fair. We like that kind of of an attitude. Max Armstrong standing by with an interesting market conversation with his guest when we continue on the Saturday Morning Show. You've heard the voice before. It's attached to the body in the studio with us this weekend. Mike Pearson. Welcome, sir, from Zaner Group it is. That's correct. Got a new title. Thank you, Max, for the chance to uh, to get on the air again with the voice of the Midwest. I always appreciate it. Love to have the chance to talk to you, get caught up, and, you know, chat markets, chat agriculture, chat everything that's happening in our world. First, talk about your new role there. You bet. So I have uh, recently accepted a position with the Zaner Group in downtown Chicago. I know you've, uh, a lot of your listeners are probably familiar with Ted Seifert or Brian Grossman, some of the other market strategists at the company. I'll be there helping work with farmers who have maybe never utilized futures and options to manage risk, trying to figure out why they haven't, and then what I can do to help get over those concerns, because it's a great tool. It's available to everybody. We need more folks taking advantage of it, especially in a volatile year like this one. How few farmers are there who have not utilized those tools? So most of the industry numbers are about 7% of farmers are actively using futures and options to hedge. 7%. 7%. So 93% of farmers are not practicing risk management strategies beyond you know crop insurance or perhaps forward contracting. And that's just... As the industry gets more strapped for cash, as bankers start looking a little more closely at balance sheets and at bottom lines, my feeling is if there's a way to squeeze another nickel out of every bushel of corn, we need to be doing it this year. We need to be doing it for the next several years so we can keep our feet under us, keep our ground under us, and keep our operations going. I would imagine lenders would love to see a well-grounded risk management program involving those risk management tools. Absolutely, absolutely. So that's one of my main... uh, goals is getting out talking to lenders because there's also a number of lenders who have never worked with the futures markets either. And, you know, the idea that you could have a margin call on grain that's been sold in Chicago, that's upsetting to a lot of folks. So how can we manage their expectations as well and make sure everybody's playing on the same team? Look at this summer 2019 and compare it. You've been doing this for a while. Compare it with other market rally summers that we've seen. Oh, this boy. one has been tough to sustain, hasn't it? It's been really tough to sustain. Uh, you know, if we look back to 15 and 16 uh, and 17, we get these fears of a short crop. We, we, we always get them in the spring. You know, there's always some kind of a planting delay. This year was an exceptional planting delay. So it stands out a little bit more than, than most other years. 
But at the end of the day, I think what is in the back of the market's mind is that in all these other years we've had challenges, we still end up growing a darn good corn crop. Now, soybeans, we still have a tremendous amount of risk ahead of us. I don't want to get over my skis and say that beans are made. They certainly are not. We have a long, scary August approaching us. But on the corn side, it does sound like the yields are going to be a little bit lower, but they're probably still going to be there. At least that's the market's expectation now. And I don't see anything that can really change that expectation, Max, until we get into harvest and start getting, well, and maybe crop tour season. We get in closer towards the end of August, but then into harvest. That's going to be the next time we have a chance to really maybe move these markets back to the upside. Looking at those fields, you really have to enter the field or fly a drone over to look at it. I was at a tractor ride just a few days ago in DeKalb County, Illinois, where many fields didn't get touched or they were washed out. And I did see some very good tasseling picket fence type fields as you went along the road. Then I stood up on the tractor platform and looked out over the field and the holes were very obvious out there. Yeah, I had the chance to fly from Chicago to Sioux Falls just a few weeks ago and flying over north central Illinois. You know, I suppose we touched a little bit of northern Iowa, southern Minnesota on that trip. The amount of bare fields was surprising uh, because, you know, when we think of this year's real challenges, my mind goes to the eastern Corn Belt, Indiana, Michigan, Ohio. Those are the guys that I know really got hammered. But we've got a fair number of acres that just didn't get in the ground in our part of the world as well. And then just like you're saying, you get up there and you see the drowned spots and it kind of took my breath away. If I'm honest, flying in that little twin engine jet to Sioux Falls, it was a really good bird's eye view most of the trip and it surprised me. But something we always talk about when we get these heavy wet weather is, yeah, we lost two acres of corn. That's going to zero out. But then you go the next five acres. Well, they had adequate moisture. And they had adequate moisture when this heat hit, as we're getting close to pollination, as we're getting into tassel. And that corn's probably going to do pretty darn good, all things considered, relatively pretty good. Two things come to mind to set this summer a little bit apart. We're not accustomed, we don't have many analogous years for wet and extremely delayed and replant planting seasons. That's true. And... You know, you can think, because we've gone to 93 quite a bit. You were just a, a bunk kid. I, I was. And so I remember we, in 1993, <laughs> we were farming in southern Iowa, and I remember watching the Grand River slowly overcome its banks, and Dad was talking about it, but I, I wasn't paying attention to the market structure in 93. I was you know, 11 years old. Um, but I do remember that's a year we've talked about quite a bit, but it was a very different scenario. Yeah. Crop got in okay in 93 and then was hammered with moisture. This year is a bit of an outlier, and it's one of those things where... The geography was bigger this year, too. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. And, I mean, just the flood stage on the Mississippi was longer. We've got all of these other factors that are a much bigger deal in 2019 than they were in 93. But the market doesn't know how to interpret these factors until we see what actually comes off these combines come harvest. You and I have visited here for uh, almost six minutes. We still haven't talked about the trade war. And that really is an overhanging factor, is it not? I know we've got some talks scheduled this next week in Shanghai. The Treasury Secretary will be there. I believe the trade representative will be certainly yep. of the discussions, two days of discussions. And yet the market is finding it very hard to get excited about any trade talks. We've heard this uh, cry wolf 
uh, scenario, I think, too many times. That's you hit the nail on the head there, Max. I, we've this is the boy that has cried wolf for the past eighteen months. We need to see a signed agreement, I think, before the market's going to actually start to get excited. Beijing made an announcement, I believe it was last Friday. They said that uh, several of their main soybean crushers would be able to buy beans from the U.S. tariff-free, sort of a an olive branch to the U.S. Maybe we'll get these guys buying some grain. We'll take the tariffs off of them in China, and that'll uh, keep the president keep. President President Trump happy. Well, unfortunately, none of those firms have stepped up to the plate to make any bean purchases, even though they're not going to be having to pay the tariffs. That, I think, was eye-opening to the bean market. I think we were anticipating we'd get some sales, even a couple of pity sales, just to get them on the books. And the fact that we haven't speaks to two different things. One, it speaks to the uncertainty that this this ongoing trade war has created. You know, I know everybody who listens is probably sick to death of hearing about it, but it is an uncertain piece of the puzzle just sitting out there overhanging the market. And the other thing I think the lack of purchases highlights is the damage that's been done by African swine fever. You know, you look at that Chinese hog herd and... I'm not one to necessarily trust the numbers coming out of the Chinese government on the spread of that disease. But according to private veterinarians, according to to feed industry folks over there, as much as 50 percent of their breeding herd is dead or dying. That's huge. And that's going to have a really long lasting effect. And that's something that's going to kind of put a pall over the bean market, even if the trade war gets resolved you know, next week, which I think is probably pretty highly unlikely. Let me switch quickly to talk about the hog situation for a moment. We have been thinking for quite a while that there would be this huge pork demand coming out of China. Mm -hmm. And maybe the hog industry got a little bit ahead of itself here with uh, expansion. Yeah, I think they did. I I don't want to judge anybody else's operation, but I think you're right. There was all of this hope that we were going to suddenly enter this market in a big way. But at the end of the day, we're still feeding ractopamine to 80% of our hogs, and China's not going to allow those hogs into country yet. I've got a feeling if their protein shortage gets dire enough, they will be happy to take hogs that have been raised more efficiently. But as of now, they're still saying no racto. They are starting to make some purchases of more of the the non-ractopamine pork. We're seeing more producers look at that type of an operation just so they can capture that market premium. And it's worth looking at, but you're right. We got really fired up earlier this spring. We ran hogs up to 93 bucks, hoping that we were going to start to see some big orders from China. And they just haven't materialized. And what's frustrating, I think, from the market's perspective is that we also haven't seen big sales going to other countries whose pork is now going to China. We were anticipating some of that backfill order to come to us, and it just hasn't yet, Max. And I think it will. Eventually, China's going to have to do something about a protein shortage, and they're clearly trying to ramp up their their poultry production. We are starting to see them import more beef, but from a cost perspective, I just don't think they're going to do that in a large scale. It's going to have to be pork, and eventually, they're going to have to come to the U.S. I mean, we are the best exporter to work with, but it just takes time, and with the trade war... It's one more reason for them to look elsewhere first, which is frustrating. Some people have been saying that with the length of time that will be necessary, would be necessary to rebuild the pork industry in China, that indeed we might see some of those other nations that you mentioned becoming suppliers, that they might step in to fill the gap, that there would still be the demand for protein and, and pork in the world, that there would still be soybean demand in those countries that step up to the produce uh, the pork for China. So the bean demand may be coming back someday? Oh, absolutely. It'll come back because at the end of the day, bean meal is the most efficient, the highest protein crop or livestock feed there is. 
It's just how quickly can we rebuild these herds anywhere? The big hit in China is gone. I think you're exactly right. It's going to take several years. I mean, potentially decades for China to regrow their hog herd. But whether Russia steps up or we see, you know, Vietnam and other places in Southeast Asia step up to raise hogs, they're going to be buying bean meal. And uh, that's going to come to our shores one way or another, which is good news. It's just not great news in 2019. We haven't yet talked about Brazil. And isn't that part of the problem that those crushers, that handful of crushers in China really didn't come after the soybeans? For one thing, they could get them elsewhere and Perhaps cheaper? Yes. One of the major headaches we've got, and I think I feel, I feel like I've said that several times in this interview, we've got a lot of headaches in ag this year from planting delays to trade war to the trouble going on in Brazil. The Brazilian real, their currency, has absolutely fallen apart this year. Uh, there's currently some talk about, you know, the incredible amount of distrust in their president and, you know, their broad economic picture isn't very strong. So the Brazilian real is very cheap, which for listeners who aren't well-versed in currency trading, that means that for a country like China, they can step in and buy a lot more of, let's say, soybeans from Brazil for the same price they would have had to have paid in the U.S. for much less. So it's a better value proposition. And we're seeing that happen. That has definitely been a huge advantage for Brazilian growers all year. And it doesn't look like that's going to change anytime soon. So, Mr. Pearson, when a producer asks you, about the potential for a market rally yet this year, and especially a post-harvest rally that some people like to talk about, or maybe hitting the peak around that uh, January crop report when we finally get a a number on production for 2019. What do you tell growers? So I tell them that I think we've put in our highs for the summer on corn. Soybeans remains to be seen. Let's see how August weather shapes up. On the corn side, I think we've put in our high. Uh, There's a discussion going on in our office. Are we going to see D's corn touch 440? or 412 first. And I'm on team 440 because I'm a longtime farmer. I like to see the price of corn rally. But realistically, 412 looks to be more likely for us to hit first. There are just so many bearish factors now sort of piling up on us as we roll through the rest of the summer. And there's not enough potential bullish news to come in and cause us to spark a rally. Once combines start to roll, once we start getting yield reports, once we start finding out that maybe they're not able to get a hold of grain in the eastern corn belt, then we're going to see some life return to this market. So if there will be a rally, it will come post-harvest, I think probably, in that October to December time frame. Um, the January USDA report, we should have, hopefully, fingers crossed, a pretty good handle on the numbers by then after the combines have rolled. Soybeans, play it by ear. We're going to have some opportunities to make some marketing um, in August. We're going to have a hot, dry spell. Take advantage of it. Um, at the end of the day, we are still competing with Brazil. They are still able to plant more bean acres. They are still going to have a cheaper product than we have. So if you get the chance to make the sale, let's do it. On the wheat side, we had a great reversal on Wednesday, a huge reversal, in fact, on Wednesday. I, I hate making the argument to get some wheat sold here down at these prices when, when wheat's still priced uh, comparatively to corn. But at the end of the day, it's been a tough slog, and that Chicago market in particular. Let's see how this thing runs out for the rest of this week here as we head into the month of August. And I would not be adverse to uh, pulling the trigger on getting some sales on. Mike Pearson, good to see you again. Among the hats you wear is Vice President of Market and Engagement for Zaner Group. You tweet on a regular basis. You can find me at Pearson Cattle. Pearson Cattle. That's correct. Tweeting often with good stuff, as a matter of fact. And you do some radio on a regular basis. I do. Do a podcast called Ag News Daily every day. AgNewsDaily.com. Check it out. Thanks, Mike. Good to have you here. Thank you, Max. 
It'll be a different Farm Progress show later this summer with the mergers that have taken place among the companies that serve farmers. There'll be new names, new signs, new logos out there among the more than 600 exhibitors. It'll be the place for the producer to sort it all out. The Farm Progress show dates this year are August 27th through the 29th. The show will be back at Decatur, Illinois, the 66th annual Farm Progress show. Keep an eye on the website for updates, farmprogressshow.com. And right now, Max Armstrong with another look at crop conditions around the country here on the Saturday Morning Show. We get another BASF field report this weekend from Kurt Martins out there driving around the fields, looking into the fields, walking into them. And I would imagine uh, viewing those fields with the producers with whom he works closely. Kurt, I bet you see all kinds of situations out there, a, a great variety. I mean, that's one thing I noticed. I was in the DeKalb County area last week, and uh, it's just uh, quite a bit of variability that you see. It's a real eye-opener in uh, in parts of the state, especially up there in, in northern Illinois. They got hit by the, the wet weather earlier. It's, uh, it, uh, it's, it's definitely an eye-opener. Is the weed control also highly variable in spots? Yeah, it sure has been this year, just due to the... the the delayed plantings, uh, you know, some guys weren't able to get a pre-on. And, and when we start from behind the, the, the eight ball there without having the pre-on and helping hold back some of that weed pressure, puts a lot more selection pressure on our, our post strip. So we're relying on it to do a lot of the work, and, and that makes it real tough for the, the herbicide technologies that we have out here, especially with the weeds that we have as well. And the spraying routine was prone to interruption by the weather at times, uh, we noticed. Y- you bet. You know, a lot of retailers... We're spraying corn burned down, soybean burned down, corn post, and soybean post, and back-to-back-to-back loads coming through their mixed plants. So whenever you have that going on, it's a very hectic and confusing time. And I want to say, you know, everyone's done a pretty good darn, a pretty darn good job getting all that done this season. It's required a lot of teamwork and coordination and uh, patience and tolerance, hasn't it? It sure has. What are you seeing right now out there? What do you want to bring to our attention this weekend? Well, all of our early planted corn is is now at Tassel. It's a great sight to see. Our June planted corn is just about there. And our soybeans, uh, they're all in the reproductive stages for the most part. So, so there's we're, we're there. We're we're doing it. The plants are doing it. Uh, we've had some some pretty decent weather to go along with it, but we can't take our, our foot off the gas pedal yet. We want to make sure everyone's still scouting because if we peek our head into cornfields like I do, seeing quite a bit of disease and, and, and a, a varying amount of fungal disease. So I, I, I can find, in the same field, I can find gray leaf spot, common rust, northern corn leaf blight, a lot of physoderma brown spot out there, and then in a handful of areas, we are starting to see the tar spot show up. It is beginning to uh, rear its ugly head again then, huh? It sure is. So when I look at all that disease pressure with the, the cooler temperatures, you know, it's just ideal for this fungal disease development in our corn. So I want to make sure everyone's everyone's protecting you know this crop that's worth more than it has been in several years. So the recommendation is to to look at making a tassel application of Headline Amp. It rates from anywhere from ten to fourteen point four ounces to the acre. So your local retail salesman can can help with that recommendation. Am I correct that in many instances you also suggest that even if there isn't that uh, direct evidence of disease at the moment, that the plants will still benefit from that fungicide application? That's right. BSF plant health applications or BSF fungicides have the ability to help the plants withstand periods of, of stress, say whether it's from drought stress or or some other weather related stress. Anytime we're in that, if we get some stress on this crop during that important grain field period, could potentially lose 
lose some bushels. So it's another benefit of, of BASF plant health applications. We sure are in a race to maturity now, aren't we? We sure are. Now, we don't want to forget about the soybeans out there. Some people want to forget about those, but you are seeing the insects. So, so cooler and maybe a little bit drier weather is going to be very beneficial to insects. We've got those Japanese beetles hanging around. Then I work in parts of Iowa, starting to see some pockets of, of soybean aphids. That's something our growers really haven't had to deal with in a long time. It may not happen. I hope it doesn't. But I want to make sure everyone's not forgetting to scout their soybeans as well. It's great to talk to you, Curtin. We've appreciated your updates here during the growing season. Thank you so much. I appreciate it, Max. Thank you. Kurt Martin's Technical Service Representative with BASF. Well, I'm afraid we've taken more than our time this morning, so time to say thank you to Bob Ferguson for his fine engineering work. Thanks to you for joining us here on the Saturday Morning Show. Chicago Stories, told 24-7 on 720 WGN Chicago. Smart speaker users, just say play WGN Radio on TuneIn. Time for the news, and we say good morning to Maple Walker.